0: i thank you for another day to study your word i can't believe we are coming to the end of the study in the fall and your faithfulness to bring us here and all that we have learned about your son the king and all that he's accomplished and is going to now accomplish for the church i pray today that you would enable me to speak clearly exactly what you want said about this passage and that you give us all hearts to receive your word and to be hearers and doers of it and we pray lord for these two precious boys we pray for jonathan and for isaac have just lost their mother and we pray that they too would believe in the name of Jesus and trust in him for salvation that one day they would be reunited with you and their mother for thousands and millions and billions of years for all eternity and we just pray that you would cause them to know the truth and that maybe their family would even come visit this church and that you would bless them spiritually and we pray that you bless this time and that you'd be honored in all that happens. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are going to go a little slower than you expected. You're expecting us to get through Acts 12 today, and we are not. We're going to stop at Acts 7, because I couldn't. I just couldn't. Um, (laughs) So, um, I've been very humbled by the book of Acts. (laughs) My husband looked at me the other day, he's like, don't you know this well?" And I said, actually, I I don't. I kind of thought that I did, but I don't. And so, I'm having to slow down to make sure that I get it right, and so, once again, just like last week, I am very thankful for the faithful men who have taught this, and have learned a lot and leaned a lot on what I learned from Abner Chowd's class on Acts, and so we're just going to go through Chapter 7 so that over the break I have more time, I've bought some more resources to dive in and and get the rest of the book of Acts right. I even want to maybe, Lord willing, not promising, but I'd like to make a little handout to help us with this, but we'll see what happens. I also dream of PowerPoint someday, but we're doing things one step at a time. Um, So, as we begin, I just want to remind us of where we've been and what we've learned, And so we saw last week, remember we said one of the big things when we're reading the book of Acts is Acts is not normative, right? Everyone's teary-eyed, and I'm about to cry. (laughs) If I cry today, I'm sorry. I can see that you all are too, but we make it through. Okay, Um, Acts is not normative for the church. Acts is not a promise. Everything we see in Acts does not mean that's how it's going to play out in our life. And then we also said that the church is supposed to be a witness to the resurrection. If you remember, I said as we go through the rest of the New Testament, like highlight a note every time the resurrection is mentioned. And I just want to pick up on that and do a little review. If you were in Acts chapter 1, it said that Jesus, remember, had appeared to them for 40 days. And that 40 days parallels and is supposed to parallel the re-giving of the law to Moses. So if you remember, Moses got the law, was up on the mountain, came down, golden calf happened, he breaks the tablets, he has to go back up. When he goes back up, he's up there for 40 days. It's the re-giving of the law, and he asks that he could see God's glory, right? And God makes his goodness pass before him. Well, there are a lot of parallels here between what God did with Moses and Israel and what Jesus is doing with the disciples. So Israel, when they sinned with the golden calf, they should have been wiped out legally, right? They should have been—God should have been done with them. But Moses pleads for them, and God forgives them, Right? And God shows his glory, and it's that glory, when Moses comes down and he has to veil his face, because his face is, remember, shining with the glory, the reflected, and, and he comes down, and it's from seeing God's glory and the forgiveness that God provides that Israel and Moses is able to have the courage to go forward. Well, the disciples, we just read through all the Gospels, I mean, wasn't very long ago, historically speaking, like, what, 41 days ago that Peter was denying Christ, <laughs> Right? And so the disciples are going from men who had scattered and had denied Christ to men who are going to be leading the church. And what is Christ doing during these 40 days? He is showing them his glory. What does 2 Corinthians 3 say that we see now with unveiled faces? We see something greater than what Moses saw because Christ has come. And it is because of the power of the resurrection that what they are learning from Christ in these 40 days that they are going to be able to go forward as changed men and lead the church. And so this kind of reminds us of a little recap of everything we've studied. What is God doing in the kingdom? Abner Chow says, The vision of the powerful, resurrected, glorified, living Lord, Jesus Christ, must be on the souls of the disciples because it drives the entire narrative. It drives what's going to happen. And so then he talks about the kingdom, and he says, What does the kingdom refer to? And he says, The kingdom in concept and essence refers to the exhaustive, complete, and total sovereignty of God, over all things particularly the cosmos so let's go back Genesis 1 and 2 God has created a perfect world a perfect world with rest and why does the world have rest and perfection because it's under God's perfectly sovereign rule remember he ruled by it's his good world and why God is perfectly ruling the world everything is as it should be right and then Satan challenges that in Genesis 3 and everything falls apart and so now we're faced with the question how does this get fixed how do we get back to Eden how is the problem solved And we see that God is going to raise up a nation, and he raises up the nation of Israel. And again, Abner says Israel is meant to have an international impact, and this is all review. We reviewed all this last year, and we learned all this last year. Israel is meant to have an international impact by its practices, by its proclamations, the covenants, right, the law, by its actions and law. It's a miniature kingdom, right? It's a miniature theocracy. And what it's supposed to show the world is how we get back to Eden, how things are supposed to be, and when that theocracy takes over the world—not in a sinister way—but when the Davidic king is the king over the whole world, right? Isaiah two, then everything's right in the world. But instead of Israel being covenantly faithful, they sin, and they're covenantly unfaithful. So now the world has sinned, then Israel has sinned. So we're like, so what are we going to do? Well, if you can fix Israel, then you can fix the world. You see, are you following the logic? The logic of the covenants, the logic of... God is going to, the Davidic king, all the promises of covenants come through Israel. When that king rules, things are right with the world. But Israel, how do we fix it? We have to deal with sin. We have to deal with sin because when the world and Israel sinned, right, that's what causes the fall. And the wages of sin are death, right? The wages of sin is death. And so when Christ comes and he dies on the cross and he rises again, remember the cross is powerless without the resurrection, what has he done? He has paid the penalty of sin, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He has paid the penalty of sin, and he has conquered death in his resurrection. This is why the resurrection is the linchpin of history. This is why everything hinges on it. This is why they are a testimony to the resurrection, right? This um, This is what the church has to go about. To be re- for the church to be relevant, not to the culture, but to the kingdom and to God's purpose plans, we have to be about the resurrection because it is through the death and resurrection of the Lord that sin is fixed, and that's how Israel gets fixed, and that's how the world gets fixed, right? So, <clears throat> Jesus is making clear to the disciples in these 40 days, you are going to focus and witness to the resurrection. And then we saw again that Luke, this is all, still all under review, the Old Testament, is, remember the, the phrase, it had to happen this way? because of the Old Testament has huge overtones into all of the New Testament, but in Acts, particularly Isaiah and Acts, because it's saying this is what the Bible said, and here's how it had to happen because God said so. And so we see the, and so that brings us to chapter 3 and 4. Really, we saw 3 last week, but we're just going to pick up in 3 again because we're going to go to our first point, which is the name, the one name, the power of the one name of Jesus. So in, verse, in chapter 3, we had the healing of the lame man right? And if you look with me in verse, I think it's verse 16, um, we see how was he healed. It says, and in his name, by faith in his name, this is referring to Jesus' name, has made this man strong whom you see and know the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And then Peter gives, the rest of chapter three, he gives a, a sermon, Calling Israel to repentance because Christ is, is risen because of the power in the name that can heal that can forgive sins, you need to repent. We looked at all this all last week, so we 're going to pick it up in verse four, and we 're going to see that the authority of the name of Jesus is going to uh, and, and is going to be the reason the church has authority. Peter and Paul John do not have authority in themselves. The church does not have authority in itself. We have authority because we bear the name of Christ, and it is through Christ and His authority that the church is empowered, right. And so the church is saying we have authority because we bear the name of Christ, right? And this is going to set up for a conflict, a conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Same conflict that Jesus had. Remember, with the things Jesus began, Jesus is not continue. So if they had a conflict with Jesus in the Gospels, they're going to have a conflict with Jesus here because they have not repented. <clears throat> so the conflict is always over who has the authority. Remember, we looked at that when we were in Matthew. We looked at who has the authority when we looked at the Sabbath day conflicts. And by Jesus saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, I have the authority. Well, this same conflict is coming up because they say the name of Jesus it has the authority. And the... the um, the Sanhedrin doesn't like that. So read with me in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. And they were speaking to the people. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, it's two men. How many people do you need to arrest two men? This would be like I'm speeding down Taylor'sville Road, and like the CAA and the FBI, like descend upon me. Right? You're like the traffic cops. Got this? Right? (laughs) Like this is just like you have two men, and they're preaching, and they actually healed a guy. Like we don't have any. And they, uh, everyone in power, has come and descended upon him. And this shows you the threat that the name of Jesus is to these people. The threat that the authority is to them. They don't see this as a minor detail. This is something that has to be stopped. And then you notice, again, the emphasis is upon the name in verse two. They're, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. And then you go to verse 7, and what do they? What did the Sanhedrin demand of Peter and James? They said, and when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Right? Wh- who, who gives you the authority? They know that Peter and John aren't the authority. Where are you getting your authority? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, the exclusivity of the name. There's one authority, there's one salvation, it's in Jesus. And there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So the apostles are saying, we have the authority and it's exclusive. And, and, and really, they're representing Christ, right? There's one authority, it's in Jesus, and there's one way you get saved, and that is through the name of Jesus, and we are his representatives and you aren't, right? And that becomes really clear because what did they quote in, in verse 11? In verse 11, when he says the, the cornerstone, this Jesus is the stone that you rejected, they're quoting from Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, and again, we could walk through this, but for time, Abner summarized, (laughs) Abner Chow, the the professor I listened to, he summarized the three points that Peter is making through this claim. And the first point is that who, when the, in Psalm 118, sorry, the prophets agree, the first point is the prophets agree with Peter. So Psalm 118 is prophesying to a future rejection, right? It's saying that there's going to be a stone and it's going to be rejected. And he's saying Jesus was the, so if the scripture is pointing toward this and Jesus was that, then, who, then who's on, in, on the scripture side? Peter and John are. And who's not? Who rejected him? The, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the priests. And so the priests only have authority. The priests do have an authority, right? God set up the priesthood. But their authority only extends how far? Their authority only comes from the law and their obedience to the law. When they go beyond that, they're outside of their, right? They don't have authority anymore. They're acting on their own. And so these priests have gone way beyond the law. In fact, they re- they've rejected, right, the cornerstone. They've rejected Christ. And so they don't have authority anymore. And so he's saying the prophets, they have authority over us. They are, we are aligned with Scripture. You are not. And I want us to pause today and say that I think that it's, it's subtle, but we can often do something similar to the Pharisees. We can let things that we do in church take priority over the word. And we can put more stock in our traditions and our customs and the way it's always been instead of focusing on the Word and the Word of God and what the Word of God is calling us to do. And, you know, there are lots of things we do that aren't in Scripture that are okay. Like, we have Sunday school, right? And it doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt have Sunday school. I'm all for Sunday school. I love that my kids go to Sunday school because it's a way that we're obeying teaching the Word. It's a way that we teach the Word to our kids. But there are lots of ways you can do it, and we don't put our hope in the method right? We don't put our, so we can we have different methods, but it's about the main thing, the word, right? So when we start defending our system or we start defending our preferences or our, a, a, you know, churches split over carpet color, right? They do. We can joke about it, but they do. When those things trump what scripture is about, we have become like the Pharisees, right? We are, we are missing the whole point. It is about the one name, the power of that name and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. So we have to be careful in our own hearts. Are we standing up for the word and Christ and his truth? Or are we standing up for what we like? Because it's our preference. So then our second point. The prophets agree with them. Psalm 118 says, and in Psalm 118, 22 through 23, you can listen as I read. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in Psalm 118, verses 20 through 23, it says, who is good and who is bad? right? So the good people, who is good? The stone is good, right? Because the Lord has made it the cornerstone, and that is marvelous. So those who are, who believe in the stone and the cornerstone, those are the good people. And who is bad? Those who reject it. So the prophets agree with us, and they condemn you. The prophets are saying that you are evil. And then the third point that it says is that this whole psalm takes place in, the, the psalm was written and took place and was read right after, around the time that Ezra, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, they were rebuilding the temple? that's the timing of this psalm and they're in the temple when they're saying this and so that temple looked forward in psalm 118 14 it says the lord is my salvation it's looking forward and obviously that temple wasn't the salvation of israel it's looking forward to a greater salvation and what has peter just proclaimed There's salvation in one name right and so the prophets agree with us and they condemn you and salvation is through christ and we're on his side and so now the battle line is drawn clearly right who's going to have the authority who is, and the priest, because right, right after this, the, the message is authenticated. Verse 13 Peter declares this, and then now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And then they see the man who's healed, right? There's no way you can deny this healing. So they're kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we're just going to tell them. We're going to threaten them, right? And so that's what they do. Verse eight, um, 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone, what? In the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach, what? At all. In the name of Jesus. You can just go through and highlight the name all over again <laughs> these chapters. It is the emphasis, right? And But what do they say? What do Peter and John say? Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So Peter and John have been arrested. They have stood up for their faith. They have been threatened, and now they are released. So how do they respond to this persecution? They pray. Look in verse 23. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and sea and everything that is in them. We don't have time for this whole prayer, but they praise the Lord for his power over sovereignty. And then what do they ask of him in verse 29? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The first thing they ask of the Lord is to continue to speak the word. Right? Because just because they were bold doesn't mean they weren't intimidated. Just because they were bold doesn't mean what happened to them wasn't scary. And they don't, Flee from the problem. They don't trust in their own charisma, like like verse thirteen, where they spoke. But they they turn to the Lord and say, "Grant us the ability to continue doing this." That's what they ask of Him, and then they say, "While you stretch out your hand to heal and um, stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." So why are they asking for signs and healings? I think today we would almost reverse that. Like, give us the power, and then we'll preach. You know, I think if if you had. Today, if we had the same kind of ministry of signs and healings and miracles, you might think that was more important than the preaching of the word. It's definitely flashier, right? But the importance is the preaching of the word. And the signs and the miracles and the wonders authenticate the message. So what it's saying, what God is saying to the world through the disciples is, they have the power behind their message. They are speaking for me. This is legitimate, and it's authenticating their message. That we can, he's doing a new thing, right? Something that's never been done, and so he's authenticating the message. And he's showing that when they speak, there is power, divine power, and it's power through what? The name. That's what they're forbidden to teach, and that is what they are proclaiming. It's not their power, it's the power through the name. So then we have verses 32 I think through 37 here, where it says, in my Bible, it says they had everything in common. This is the part where now the church has needs. So just a few words on this. So we see that the church responds, one, in prayer. The church has power in the name. That name has authority. That name is exclusive. And when we are persecuted and we have trials, we pray in that name, and God has the power to answer those prayers. He answers them. He gives them these signs and wonders, right? We are praying to a God who hears. It authenticates the message. And now we see this fleshing out, and we have a community of believers, a new humanity that Christ is raising up. And what does that new humanity show the world? This is not some kind of treatise right here on on social justice or on communism. What it's saying is that they're one body. And there's no longer these distinctions of rich and poor, which was a huge class distinction back then, right? It's saying, that's my brother who has a need, and I'm going to meet the need of my brother. And that's my sister who has a need, and we will go to radical lengths to meet the needs of the body of Christ. That's what it's saying. That's what's important. And it's also, it seems to be like everyone sold their stuff and put it into one big collective pot. That's not what happened. What happened was um, somebody had a need, and somebody sold some property to meet that need. And then later, somebody else had a need, and so more proper so as needs arose, then people did what was necessary to meet the need okay and it was a continual process that went on, and so we see the church responds in giving, and the church responds in prayer <clears throat> and The other thing I want us to note here is that we don 't have and this is again something that uh, that abner um, professor Chow I should say stopped and um and pointed out that we can sometimes focus that the people who have the important ministries in the church are the elders or the pastors or the people who are up front. But look what the church is getting pressed for, right? We don't have to be well-known to make a difference in the church. The general congregation is getting as much press right now in Scripture as the apostles' teaching, and it's advancing the gospel. And in fact, if you think about who the early church was, it's all a bunch of laymen, right, who are just proclaiming the name of Christ and then living out what it means to be in the body of Christ, and that's going to change the world. You, don't ha- you, you can change the world exactly as how God has gifted you now through obedience to him. So this brings us to our second point, which is in chapter 5, and this is the seriousness of sin in the church. So we've kind of seen the positive outworkings, the prayer and the giving in the church. We're also going to see a negative. We're going to see how serious God— that we, the church is a place of transformation, but it's also a place of judgment. And so if you read with me in verses 5 through—chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal?" Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So, what's happening here? Right? It's it's bigger than telling a lie. Okay. It's he lied to the Holy Spirit, and how did he lie to the Holy Spirit? There are a few parallels that might help make this a little bit more clear to us. Right before this, I didn't point out, but in, the, in this passage in four, where the everyone's sharing and having things in common, it mentions a man named Barnabas, right? And how and so right away, if there wasn't a chapter division, it'd be clearer, because you wouldn't stop there, you'd see that you're supposed to really be comparing Barnabas with Ananias. And then if you were reading in the original language, you'd also see that the word, the language is very similar, that you'd be also comparing Ananias to Achan. Remember, Achan was the one that when they conquered, Joshua conquered Jericho, he was the one who stole the goods he wasn't supposed to and caused their defeat at Ai. So you have, there's a lot of parallels between Ananias and Achan and Ananias and Judas. So if you start thinking about what's happening here, um, this man is trying to take glory for himself, right? And that's the lie to the Holy Spirit, that he is not doing this for the church. He's trying to say, I'm doing this for Jesus, but he's really doing it for him. And I even, like, the, like with, with Judas, when Satan comes, Judas looked like what? He looked like a disciple, didn't he? But he's not. He looked like he fit in with the twelve. The twelve, I mean, at the table, at the Passover table, when Jesus is giving the new covenant, they're like, which one's going to betray us? Like, they wasn't like, oh, clearly Judas. Like, they didn't know. Jesus knew, but they didn't. He looked like a disciple. So Ananias and Sapphira, they look like the church, right? They look like they belong, but where Barnabas is giving freely because he's part of the body and he loves, they're lying to the Holy Spirit saying, this is for Jesus, but it's really for me and how I'm going to look through my service. That's the lie of the Holy Spirit. And then that produces the rest of the lies where they say, I sold this land and didn't sell the, that, and the, the rest of it. Because you know what? He didn't have to sell the land, he didn't have to give it. Peter makes that clear. There was no command here he's violating, he's doing this entirely to look a certain way, right? Um, John MacArthur says in this passage, about this passage, for the church to be a powerful evangelist, they must be pure. The Lord makes clear with Ananias and Sapphira people need to know that the church is a place of transformation. But also, judgment. Sin must be dealt with. We can't, uh, and then Abner Chow adding to this, he says, How serious is God that the church is a legitimate institution because of the power and authority of Christ? Remember, all this is in the context of the name and the power of that name. So, how serious is God about that? If you violate this with a different power or mission, person or mentality, God says that is completely unacceptable, right? He strikes them dead. And if you were to look at Deuteronomy 21 through 23, the reason they're buried right away is they believed these people were cursed by God. That's how serious they saw this judgment, right? So God is setting a mentality for the church, all right? And he's setting a church, um, a mentality that says it's completely unacceptable, and that sets the mindset of what the church is all about. It's not just don't lie in church or don't steal from it. It's much more serious. When you go to church and you teach Sunday school or Bible study or lead a small group or give or whatever capacity you serve in, If you do it for you, you are no different than Ananias and Sapphira. The church should be marked by fear. If we don't abide by the lordship of Jesus, we are dead. And so you see that the church is a powerful institution when you have the power of Christ behind it. But it's a dangerous institution. You have to handle it with care, right? It's not something that we can make in our own image or use or manipulate for our own power. And the satanic attack also shows you that Satan did this, the power of the new church, that he is trying to attack Christ. And again, Abner says, if you rob Christ from the church, you rob the church of everything. When we as a church try to start being relevant to the culture or to other things, we're not about the one name we're supposed to be proclaiming, and we lose all of our power. When Pastor Brian went and spoke to Ashley, he didn't come in as a cool pastor who would identify with someone with a drug past. He came in proclaiming the power of forgiveness of sins and resurrection, and that's what makes a difference in someone's life. That's where the church becomes relevant to the kingdom plan, and that's where the power is. And if you go anywhere else from that and make the church about anything else, you lose the power and authority that Christ has given it because it's not about Christ anymore. And so we see that the church is going to be most effective. And, you know, if if we've had time to do, like, a Bible study on the history of the church, we focus on the Reformation, the church is most effective when it clings to Christ and defends the truth. That's when we're effective. And if you want a little study over the break, um, study the Reformation and see how, how that plays out. So then that shows us, bringing us back to Acts um, 5. Acts 5, chap- verses 12 through 16 show us the power that Jesus has. Because now they're doing, the, you know, Ananias and Sapphira have been judged, and then they're doing signs and wonders. But note what it says in verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. People realize this is not something that you fake. This isn't something we're going to go in there and get a little of this blessing that's going on with all this giving to each other. No, it's serious to be part of the church, and we're not going to fake it. We also see the power of Christ that while people who aren't serious don't join, it, He does call many to Himself, and more than ever, verse fourteen, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that we see the power of Christ to draw people to Himself, and that brings us that conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees, now it's going to be up the level, okay? And so we see, again, because they're doing these signs and wonders where in verse 12? They're doing them in Solomon's court, which is part of the temple. And so this brings us to point three, the conflict escalates. And again, the supremacy of the one name. So in verses 17 through 18, we read, but the high priest rose up and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison, okay? So right now, we just need to stop and remember they're preaching, they're doing these signs and wonders, but where are they doing it? They're doing it in the temple. And the temple has immediate significance to everybody. Every and one goes to the temple, and they know the temple stands for these things. It would be like if I go to Chick-fil-A and I order a hamburger. Okay, you can't go to chick Everyone knows Chick-fil-A is about chickens, right? And we've all seen the million, I mean, it's a national thing that we understand that Chick-fil-A is about chickens and the cows are really happy about that, right? That's their thing, and we all know that. And so you'd never, so people go to the temple and they know that the temple is about going back to Eden. Remember, again, this is all last year's study. It's about restoring paradise. Remember, that's what the ta- imagery of the pa- tabernacle was about. That's what the imagery of the temple is about, Solomon's temple, that God is going to take us back. And, they, and and they, he don't, he don't, if you don't remember, just go back to last year's study. We don't have time to go through it. But everyone knew that. And the second thing that they knew was, it, so Eden and rest was the first thing they knew. And the second thing they know is that that's where God's presence is. This is where we meet with God. This is where we come to offer the sacrifices. This is where God dwells with his people, right? So Eden and God's presence. And where God's presence is, that's where the authority is. So if you can claim the temple, you can claim the authority. So where are the disciples? They're in the temple doing the signs and wonders. And what are all the people doing? They're coming to them and following them. Some scholars estimate at this point you could have had ten to twenty thousand people following them in the temple. That's a big crowd, and that's a big threat to the Pharisees, who are you're only in power as long as people follow you, right? And so if that kind of number of people aren't following you, that's a big threat to your power base. So we have to stop this. So we're going to arrest them. But what have they missed? Turn with me to John two eighteen. John 2:18. What is the other thing we have learned about the temple? In John 2, 18, It's right after Jesus has cleansed the temple, right? He says, my father's house is not going to be this, this den of, of money changers. He's get the, this, not a house of trade. And <clears throat> verse 18. So the Jews said to him after he's cleansed the temple, what sign, like by what authority, do you show for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Who's the temple now? Jesus is the temple, right? And who do they proclaim? And who has the authority? And who is the church an extension of? Christ. And so the disciples say, we have the authority. The authority is not in this physical building. It's not there. It's in Christ who has become the temple and the Holy Spirit who has made all of us that are in the body of Christ, right, his temples. And so they arrest him. It's their power play. And what does the angel say to them, turning back to Acts, when he releases them? The angel comes and he releases them and he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of what? Of this life. The temple represented that we're going back to, to rest, back to what God has which represents the gospel life, right? The gospel is life, and the pro- proclaiming the name is life. And so they—I they, think this is kind of funny. They think they're in power. They've imprisoned these guys, and then they can't find them, right? <laughs> they're supposed to be in the secure jail. They don't even know where they are, but they're right back at the temple proclaiming the truth. And in verse 27, And when they had brought them before them set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to what? Teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and th- as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It means they had no more restraint in their heart, in the original language. And they were going to. But Gamaliel steps in and says, take these men out. And so he saves their life, and he reasons with them. And so they said, okay, well, we'll see how serious they are. Then you get to the end of the, um, verse 40. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were, because they'd been flogged at this point, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for what? The name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we see the power, the supremacy, the authority, and the exclusivity of the name. This is what the church's mission, focus, and power is. It's about preaching Christ and him crucified and raised, and this is what the church is to be about. And it's just become clear and over and over and over again in all these stories at the beginning of Acts. But that brings us to another internal problem. And we see that there are chapter this is our final point today. Um, ch- I couldn't come up with a name for it. So Acts 6 and 7, we're going to look at um, the churches maybe being tested as a way we could look at this and expand it. And so you have the Hellenists. If you remember back in our very first lecture, we learned about the Hellenists. They were the ones who basically compromised culturally. They became like the Greeks, so much fo- so that they probably didn't even know the Hebrew language anymore. And if you were really to dig into history and went back to the Maccabean Revolt, a lot of them were considered not just compromisers but traitors. Okay? So you don't like Hellenists if you are a Jew who has remained faithful to Judaism. Okay? So now people from both of these groups have been saved. And yet they still have this big conflict. And so who's getting overlooked? The widows of the Hellenists. And so what do the apostles say, and what, how do they respond? And again, three things to summarize this. One, the disciples say that the church is not an inherently Jewish organization, right? We need to treat everybody the same. We're all in one body. Secondly, they say that the main emphasis of the church is its ministry of witness. The apostles need to devote themselves to the word and to prayer, right? But third, this ministry of the widows does need to happen. And so there, th- this is our outworking of theology. Remember we said theology is not con- just conceptual. It happens, right? We do need to care for those in our body. And so they, ra- they pick godly men. Actually, they pick probably mostly Hellenistic men. If you look at their names, they pick seven of them, which also was a concession to how the Greeks structured things, showing, again, we are one body. We're not about being, the Jews aren't the better Christians, right? Or the Judaizers aren't the, and, and we see that, again, the church is about, Christ is about the witness to him. And they handle this wisely. And there's a man who kind of, um, let's go to verse 7 before we go there. Verse 7, how does this issue conclude with the church? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then that brings us to Stephen. Stephen sorry, not that we have Stephen. I say his name wrong every time. I think they spelled it different. But anyway, Stephen. We have Stephen as seized. So Stephen full of grace and power, comes and is, is preaching, right? He's preaching and debating with um, those who are on the Sadducees and the Pharisees' side. And just like with Jesus, they can't refute him. They can't find something to say against him. So they get some people to lie about him, right? And say he's blaspheming about Moses and he's blaspheming about, and they arrest him. And remember, again, this isn't... Maybe just as random. This conflict's been escalating. They've got to shut this down. They've got to stop this. And so they seize on Stephen, and they're going to make an example out of him. And he preaches in chapter 7 an amazing sermon. But again, I'm going to reduce it, or I'm going to use Dr. Chow's um, summary of this, because we don't have time to go through all of it. But here's the format. Here's what he does. He structures this like a lawsuit. So this argument, they would have all known right away, this is the structure of a lawsuit, and it's how most people in the Old Testament were indicted. So they are very familiar with the Old Testament, so they know right away, this is a lawsuit that's indicting us. That's how the whole thing's structured. And he makes his first point, Israel fought against God. Didn't we see that last year? Over and over and over again, Israel fights against God. But God still accomplishes his purposes. And what are those purposes? They're the covenant purposes, particularly the Abrahamic covenant. There's going to be a land and seed and blessing that's going to come to the whole earth, okay? So Israel fights against God, but God still accomplishes his purpose. And then he concludes with an argument that they have practiced idolatry with the tabernacle and temple. They are worshiping it now instead of God, but those things were supposed to point to God, right? They have done this to such a degree that what the prophets Isaiah and Amos said, remember Isaiah and Amos say that here's what everything Israel's guilty of, they're just list after list after list of everything Israel's guilty of. They say that these Sadducees, they are guilty with the weight of the condemnation of the Old Testament woes and curses. That's what you have done. And they understand the message. They stone him right? But what does he see? He sees Jesus called who? The Son of Man. And when you see Son of Man, you think Daniel 7, right? And you think Revelation. When the Son of Man is going to come in power and authority, and he's going to make everything right. And that's what he sees. They're not winning. Christ is in heaven, and he's the Son of Man, and he's coming back. And what happens with Stephen, Stephen serves to spread the gospel through the entire world. Because now the church is going to be spread, right? It it scatters the church because of the persecution. And now, instead of containing this problem in Jerusalem, it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I mean, if you stop and think about it, I used to live in California. But in in terms of the globe, we're pretty close to California. And so if you're in Israel, California is literally about halfway around the globe, right? So if you're in America, you could say, we've really come to the ends of the earth, right? It's, It's happened. And so, what happens with Stephen spreads the gospel. And that's what we're going to pick up when we come back after the break. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these women. Thank you for the power, the supremacy, the exclusivity, and the authority of the name of Jesus. That your grace has saved us, and it is not us, it is your saving power that acted on our behalf, and that you gave us the faith, and that you save people. And may we be bold faithful witnesses, and may we be in the church faithful to hold the church to what you want us to be about, witnessing to you, and that the church is all about you, and that we would always, always defend Christ and his word and his works. And we pray that we'd be changed and transformed by the hearing of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.